0: Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. How can we design projects to optimize our learning? Bob Lenz and the Buck Institute has answers. And this name might sound familiar. A previous guest on the podcast, Tom Vander Ark, recommended his work. And this topic of project planning could be relevant to you in many ways. It could be relevant if you are a manager designing projects for employees, a teacher designing projects for students, or even you designing projects for yourself. And I can say personally that Bob is incredibly insightful and really combines a ton of research and personal experience to teach a lot of lessons. And this episode personally helped me design my work better in order to increase my motivation, incorporate expert feedback, contextualize my learning, and communicate my expectations better to other teammates. And this episode is jam-packed, but like any project, it's ultimately rewarding. Boy, now I feel like a cheesy teacher. I hope that this podcast inspires you as much as it inspired me. All right, let's do it. ah, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've uh, been really looking forward to this conversation and I know that our audience is filled with a lot of self-directed learners who are really trying to design their own work experiences and learning experiences to really optimize for their own productivity and learning and making sure that they, they really are growing in ways that stick with them. And so I've just been so excited to have you on the show. And I know Tom VanderArk in a previous episode mentioned your amazing work. So I've been really uh, looking forward to this conversation.
1: Um, myself as well. Anytime I get to talk about project-based learning, sign me up.
0: <laughs> well, awesome. I'll, I'll, that, that's a good note for anyone in the audience if they want if they want a speaker to come. Um, <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot. So I'd love to hear, uh, what's the story of how you got involved in, in this type of work? And, and who kind of inspired you along the way?
1: Uh, well, I like to, you know, I'm... There's sort of multiple levels of how I got involved with project-based learning, but um, I realized at a certain point in my in my teaching career that really I had been I was really fortunate that I actually got to experience project-based learning as a student. And so, when I was in the fifth grade, uh, Mr. Cooper was my fifth grade teacher, and we got to do some amazing projects. Um that one of them that I that I still have, we, uh, we he told us that we were all going to be uh, poets, and we were going to write our own poetry book. And so we did, and we revised and revised and then made handcrafted poetry books uh, that uh, my mom just gave back to me a little while ago that we still had, and then, we had an uh, an exhibition uh, where we had a, a poetry reading where all of my classmates and I parents came, and we had tea and and uh, and and tea cookies and read our poetry like real poets. Um, and here I am. Well, that was like nineteen seventy six, so almost uh, forty years later. I can still tell you. About that, I can remember that that project like it was yesterday. Um, and when I became a teacher, I, real, I I knew I wanted, I didn't, I wanted to be an engaging teacher that had kids really delving into the work. And so the first place I went was to, oh, well, I'll do the projects that Mr. Cooper did in the fifth grade. So I did that with my sixth graders. My sixth graders created um, poetry books. And uh, when we brought poet, uh, poets in from, I was teaching in North Beach in San Francisco. So I worked with City, uh, city Lights Bookstore. And, and not only did our kids read their poetry at a poetry reading with their parents, we actually had some local San Francisco poets reading their poetry. And you can just see this, like, turning the kids on to thinking about themselves completely different as a, as a writer. Um, Not just writing for school and an assignment, but writing for an audience. Um, And realizing that actually people do this as part of their life as an adult. Um, And then when I was teaching high school at at a high school here in Marin County, um, my colleagues developed a similar type project. But instead of having kids produce poetry books, they did what we called MTV Poetry. So they chose a poet they created a website for that poet and an anthology and had to do some critique. But in addition, they chose one poem and they put it to a video in the style of MTV Video. So it could be no more than three minutes. They had to have fast image changes. Um, and, uh, and so we'd have an exhibition there, which was uh, a poetry night where people, it was more like a film night. But then it concluded with a poetry cafe, um, with once again with students and local poets reading their poetry together, and um, it it just really that those experiences of that project going through from me as a as a student to me as a teacher to me as a colleague working with a team that's just one example of a through line just that. Completely, I completely got it Like that projects were a way that you could master the content, you could learn a skill, and you could get these um, understandings and, and dispositions and, um, that could help you throughout your life. So that's how I got into PBL.
0: So what is unique to PBL, um, Project-Based Learning? that's different from other types of learning uh, techniques or teaching techniques and and what are those other techniques that usually a a teacher has to make a decision on, I'm going to do PBL instead of this or this?
1: Usually I don't think you have to make a a choice. So I would think, so one way I like to describe PBL, project-based learning, is it's both an instructional, set of instructional strategies, it's not just one. And it's a philosophy for teaching and learning. So it actually is a way, it's a, it's a mental model or a mindset about the way you think about teaching and learning, where, where the students are at the center and responsible for their own learning. Um, and your job as the teacher is as a designer and a facilitator and a coach and a teacher um, so you play multiple roles within that um, but you can also think of project-based learning as a big umbrella that gives provides context for all kinds of other instructional strategies so this idea that you have to do one and not the other um, I don't I don't we don't, we don't subscribe to that you can think of it in a couple a couple different ways there's a framework if you think of uh, of around assessment and evaluation that you need to, within the context of a project, you want kids to know things, content, skills. Well, even within a project, you could have kids getting lectures, doing discrete activities, taking tests and quizzes, because that's a good way to check for, for understanding on, on key knowledge. But you also want kids to, or learners, not just students, but all learners, to be able to do something with that knowledge, to apply it, or demonstrate their understanding. And often that happens through some sort of performance, that could, be, or, or the creation of a product. Um, uh, we were when we were talking before the podcast about uh, creating an iPhone app. That's a demonstration to product, but it's also a demonstration of a key skill and often a knowledge of the code and the skill of putting that together. And often you would assess that either by how well in real life how people use it and then giving you feedback on the iPhone store or in a classroom you might use a rubric or some sort of set of criteria that that determines whether something's um, high quality or not and whether you have, to, you have to go back to work. And then I think the third component which often gets left out but is an important part of all learning is reflection and actually thinking about your own thinking, doing the metacognition to uh, reflect on what you did, what you learned, and how you would do it differently. Um, And the projects can be a nice context for all of those all three of those areas. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of a, a, a concrete example and thinking about the poetry project that I just described before. So you're reading poetry, you know, you, you want kids in a, say that's in a 6th grade project or 11th grade project or a university project. If they're in a class, in, a, in an English class that has poetry as a standard, you have to read the poetry. You're probably going to have to write a paper about the poetry. Maybe you're going to write some poetry. And that could be it. Or you could fold it into a project like we did where the kids read poetry, they critiqued poetry, they wrote their own poetry and then they took that and they either produced a book or a video and then they publicly presented it in a way to an audience beyond the teacher. Um, And then they had to reflect on that. So a lot of times what you're talking about with project-based learning is you're not throwing out what you did In the sort of traditional learning, you're building upon it, and you're saying it's not just enough to know stuff. You actually have to be able to do something with it. And if you're not reflecting and transferring that learning, then it was in somewhat it was you're 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 bound to repeat the same mistakes again um, in your learning. Especially, I know you have a lot of entrepreneurs that are in in your in in your in your with your work. And I think that reflective piece of really taking stock of what worked, what didn't work, how am I going to do it differently, is a key piece of entrepreneurship as you're doing lots of different iterations, uh, different products. If you're not learning from what you're doing, then you're probably apt to continue to repeat those same mistakes that aren't letting you get your product out to market, if you will.
0: So I'm hearing a bunch of different components that are included in project-based learning off of what you said. There's having students student voice, reflection, showing it in public, applying what you're learning to real-world sort of action and skill development, transferring knowledge. Um, You know, these are things that I I think are talked about a lot in education, and I'm, I'm curious to dig into them uh, and hear your perspective on how they're done well. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, for example, let, let's take the topic of entrepreneurship and app de- development, for for example. Um, and let's start with the first one of, of student voice. Um, obviously, students should feel like they're owning a project. Let's say perhaps they're making and designing their own app. They, of course, they should own it, and they should feel like it's theirs, and they sh- it should be of a topic of their interest at the same time the teacher might have done 50 apps or seen 30 students go through and they know the common problems and stuff like that so i wonder i'm wondering if there's any principles that as a teacher is giving creating room for students to to use their voice and own the project what should the teacher own and be like this is what it's going to be let's design something and what should the student own and what's the new nu- are there any principles that go across all project-based learning related to that ownership and that direction
1: uh, there's a couple principles I mean I don't know if they're like written down we'll call them lenses principles um, <laughs> the uh, so ultimately you want students to own their learning I mean that's a principle that's an element of any good um, teaching and learning.
0: How would you define owning your learning?
1: Uh, owning your learning is that I'm um, when a when a learner owns their learning, they are engaged and and intrinsically motivated to continue working on this regardless of the. Um, of the class or the assignment. It's not a, I'm doing this because my teacher told me I had to do it. It's not a compliance exercise. So when I think when there's high levels of ownership, there's a sense of, I'm in this because I want to produce the best product. Often you're saying like the authenticity of that will drive it. The public uh, nature of the work often builds ownership. Uh, the choice could build the ownership. Um, so there's there's different ways that are going to help the students get you know it, it actually matters to them. Um, that to me is like it's it's ownership. But you feel like if you set it up right, I'm responsible for my own learning. I'm not I'm not here just to suck the teacher's knowledge and then regurgitate it back. Um, I want to produce something that I want to learn what I need to learn. Go back to the iPhone app. I want to learn what I need to learn in order to produce the best iPhone app possible. Uh, That actually somebody will use, um, and maybe even they'll use it and they'll pay for it, and I'll make money um, to pay for my college that I'm going to right now. The teacher side, that one's a little like for the teacher. The principle there is you always have to be designing the project to map backwards from the outcomes that you want for the students to learn. And so when you're thinking about the the what's up for choice and what's not, if what the course is about is knowing the code and the process for building an iPhone app, um, or or if it's the technicality of like producing a high, like the, I don't know what the components are, but say there's five things that are essential to knowing in order to create an iPhone app then those are non-negotiable those have to be de- demonstrated within it but I would say like in that case what the what the students the application that the students use to for the app that's up to the kid the, the learner the, the the student who's where their interest lies unless you're in an iPhone app, you're making. You're in a class for creating iPhone apps for education. Well, then, it's got to be the components of the iPhone app. It's got to be an application in education, and you decide which part of education you're going to make more efficient or remove a pain point from in that way. So, when we were when working with high school students, often we would say, we'd say. Everybody has the same pro- so another way to think about it is you can have everybody in your class have the same product like the iPhone app. Um, but, the, but the, whatever the theme of it. so let's say I did an immigration project. Uh, everybody produced an audio um, broadcast similar to what we're doing, but they could only have five minutes. They had to interview a, um, uh, an immigrant. Um, but they could choose whatever country they wanted to, you know, they were going to look at the history. So that was a sort of, not a high level choice, but a low level choice. About, we also do projects where you have a theme and then the students choose the product by which they want to move it out. So a big question like how do we, um, how, it was a project we called, Am I My Brother's Keeper and How Do We Stop Genocide? The kids studied that in all kinds of different subjects, and then came together for two weeks and created different action projects to um, bring come awareness and uh, try to stop, you know, stop the, the aspects of genocide in our in our world. Um, and so they had all the same content um, or theme, but a different product in order to make the action. So it can go both ways, but I think the key is there has to that, and we know this from our design elements, like where we call it out, students, the best, most engagement happens when students have some level of choice.
0: Mm-hmm. And how would you say, say, do you have any examples of how teachers effectively frame the choice to them? You said, you know, the quote, which I love, love the way you put it, is that the best, when students own their learning when they're engaged and interest, intrinsically motivated by by the project regardless of the class and it's not a compliance exercise how have you seen teachers create a really good context for that and really help students find that intrinsic motivation or how do they frame it well
1: they usually the the ways that we i think that we see this happen is often the most effective, somewhat easy way to do it is making the work public. When the students know that the audience is not just the teacher, and it's actually somebody who cares about what they're producing, whether it be a um, a video or a piece of poetry, they actually they'll they'll become highly invested in it. Um, or if they think that somebody might actually might use it. Um, and so that public nature—I mean, there's other ways, but if like if you were like to nail the one where most often you're going to get it. And I remember taking kids up in a project where they chose a, a governmental issue, and they—and in this case, it was the poor, um, the lack of high-quality school facilities in California—and they developed a solution, and they were going to go up to Sacramento to uh, present to legislators and lobby for what their idea was. And I always remember Tori saying as we were preparing, she's like, I, I want to know this stuff as well as I can because I don't want to sound stupid in front of people in the legislature. Tori would not invest that level of ownership into wanting to know that stuff for a test. She was fine looking Stupid in front of me. She knew, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna care for her and 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 love her as my student, whether or not she's getting an A on the test or not. But she wasn't gonna want to look stupid in front of somebody she doesn't know, especially somebody who's, you know, connected to, to government. So that public nature is is just really important.
0: And I'm sure another benefit is that it makes the learning real. You, it's all contextualized because you. Can see how you're actually interacting with people outside of the classroom, and, and
1: right.
0: this is something that could occur within your life many times. And you also have a real feedback loop <laughs> instead of you just saying, "Oh, as a teacher, here's my feedback." It's like, well, well you're not even in government; like you're just kind of guessing.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Know?
1: Well, let's say it's it's you, you doing a podcast or doing a blog. I mean, students can do that. I mean, it's and and all of a sudden now what they're doing just became, uh, it's out there for the world. Or in the university now, I can't remember which one, you get your own domain name, and that's where you're, where they post all their work. So all their work is public. Um, and so you, you have to think, like, am I willing to put this out? Is this my best work? Um, and that was often, like, you know, the, with the question, like, for kids and getting ready to go out, the sense of critique and revision is it's a real life audience so that when you're telling somebody it's not good enough Hmm. and you're giving it back to them to keep going, you're, you're doing it in a different, you're doing it as a service to them as opposed to being a judgmental teacher. You're saying, I want you, I'm, it's changing the nature. Like I would always say like in project, good project based learning as a teacher when I set a standard and I have a rubric, or I have the public, I'm I'm not standing in judgment over the learner. I'm standing side by side with the learner, and I'm saying, okay, what do we have to do to get you ready uh, for your for your performance, or so that your product is um, is well received? Uh, it's a total different relationship in that way with a teacher and a learner. You still might instruct them. Because you look at their work and you say well you really you know you really need to learn this aspect I'll teach it to you but now you still have to go do it
0: mm. and when it comes to presenting things to the public you know you said you're you're serving them with your work instead of just sending it to the teacher and being judged how should teachers think about the feedback loops and Criticism that they're creating amongst the student and the public, and I, I'll give I'll give some examples. So for this podcast, um, and actually this is the first time I'm announcing it, we're going to have students coming on and interviewing people too, and so they're going to make a public product of you know an, an hour long episode with a tech leader, um, CTOs and founders, and that's going to be a product that they're going to post, and then they're also going to do a blog post, and that's going to be our writing lesson and that's going to that. go on. And, Perfect. you know, they're making these apps, and so they're going to have their own whole portfolio of all these things. You know, uh, you know probably the, the least effective way for them to get criticism from the public is to just release these and then hope that someone responds or that someone sees it, you know, releasing it out into the open <laughs> in the ether. And, you know, how, how are ways that, you know, our students can really – or we can really set up our students to get good feedback from these sort of things, or even in your poetry example. You know how how did you have evaluation forms that people did, or how how do you how do teachers solicit good feedback from the public?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. This is where sort of the coordination comes in. I mean, you you're right. Like especially in this day and age, there's so much content going out; it could just sit there. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel as high stakes. So um, you actually, I think, have to go, in both in the final product and in the revision process, uh, line the students up with experts who can give them critique in, in along the way. Now, the best critiquers along the way usually are the students themselves. And if you, if you give students tools and processes and they have exemplars to compare against, um, students can be as effective as experts in giving quality feedback. Now, that being said, there's nothing more powerful than somebody who's in, an expert in your field to give you feedback on, the, on your quality while it's in process and if you know they're going to see it at the end. So that's, uh, that. you know, some schools work or some models like, say, ConnectED, uh, the link learning model. They have a thing called ConnectEd Studios, and students in the high schools across the country, mostly California, that are part of that. They have a place where the students can put their work up, and then they've they've connected with industry professionals who go on and look at the work and and critique it, and the students get feedback even on videos. They can go through frame by frame and give them uh, give them uh, feedback uh, throughout the whole the whole video piece or the audio. So in the case of a podcast, that could be put up. They but Connect Ed's gone and made the connection for the industry professionals who have said that they would be willing to do that. So teachers either need to be part of a system that's connecting them or or you go find experts who people are willing to do that work. It's really powerful. I when I did the audio work with high school students um, I worked with a, uh, a radio professional, and he worked with journalists around the country. And so each of, the, each of the students working on that had an online mentor. And so before they went to go do their interviews, say with their CTO, they, had, they chose what topic they wanted to do. So, but they, the journalists helped them write the questions. So they said, they said right, what questions are you going to ask? And then they sent the questions, and then they gave them lots of feedback, like, wow, that's way too open-ended. You know what the answer to that is? It's yes and or no. You, you don't want to answer that question. Then they went and did the interview, and then the kids transcribed the interview, and then they sent the transcription to the journalist, and then they wrote a script, and the journalist looked at the script. Then they did their edited piece. The journalist gave them feedback on that, and then it went live on the radio. Um, and so the kids had like four different touch points. So that's... you you it's a really powerful way and for entrepreneurs who are trying to do this on their own and sort of manage their own project that's where the critique project process comes in and just structure your own project the same way what are the key benchmarks in your design that you want to get feedback on from people that actually know this stuff so that you know you're not going to you don't have a fatal flaw already built into your your plan um and you can adjust and it's even it's Great if you have the same person who will continue on through the way. Um, but similar, you have to be open. But well, there's learning how to give critique and being open to the critique. And uh, that's a different mindset and, and mental model. Like that says, my idea is probably pretty good, but it's going to get a lot better if I get feedback from both my peers and from experts. And you have to be willing to change. Um, and that's a, that's a tough thing, I think, especially for entrepreneurs.
0: Who, to you, is a really big leader in terms of peer student critique and ways of framing it to the students? Anyone Ron Berger,
1: Ron Berger from Expeditionary Learning is the master of this. Um, they do a great job at High Tech High, too, and, and then... Before I was at the Buck Institute for Education, I founded Envision Education in our Envision Schools, um, and there's a we call it a culture of a vision towards mastery. Um, so any those are places where you can actually see it in action. Ron is a great can really speak to it quite well. He's got a great video uh, that uh, he has called Austin's Butterfly, and. It, and uh it's a great example of what's possible through when i was saying peer critique like a bunch of first graders giving awesome feedback on his butterfly drawing you he creates a masterpiece and uh he didn't have an expert giving him feedback on that he had his first grade peers um so people should check that video out it's really it's very cool
0: awesome we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes What do you think are the incentives for these people in the field to get involved with students? And how should teachers effectively frame the opportunity to give feedback and sort of structure that relationship with an expert? Um, And this might just be guesses. (laughs) Everybody's
1: No, I I mean, so I know, I mean, because I've gone and got people to do it. So in general, people are looking for ways to – so there's both the – uh, generous reason and then there's maybe the less generous reason. The generous reason is that people are looking to give back and to connect and everybody feels like they'd like to do something for education, but they're not quite sure what. And if you can go to somebody and say, would you be willing to share your, your expertise and your passion and what you're good at with a young person who's striving to create a product that's in your wheelhouse. People are most likely to do that, especially if it's defined and structured and and uh, and limited, um, and you and you keep to your dates. The other way is that I think some businesses are and and people are interested, especially at the university level, in finding the folks who are going to be their next great employee, um, and so. It's a really great opportunity to see who's producing the best work within their field, um, and because they're giving them critique, they can actually see whether they're coachable and and a learner and going to grow before they have to hire before they hire them. So, and I think it's a similar incentive for people to go to go seek to get expert feedback. Is that you might be introducing yourself to your next boss?
0: Yeah. And, you know, so all these different components of the critiques from the peers as well as this public showing um, and the teachers providing some structure. Um, Do you have any more thoughts on how this teacher can frame the the learning experiences um, specifically in regards to reflection and making sure that students aren't just going, 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 but also capturing their... Their learnings. What's the nuance of this? Is it best done in a journal and conversations weekly at the end of the project?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's
1: a, it's a kind of a, it's an
0: ongoing reflection. So there's what, what type I mean, of questions are are asked or you, maybe you, there's not a best practice for this.
1: No, there's lots of best practice, but you you want to do it ongoing. So you want to be taking stock along the way. Um, and this is whether it's a teacher doing the directive learning, you know, you know guiding the project, or somebody doing their own self-directed project. Um, the medic, the, it's not, it's not easy, but it's where the real learning happens is taking the time to write and reflect um, ongoing about what you're doing and what you're learning. Um, Ideally, having some conversations about that with your mentor, the teacher as a mentor, or with your peers, because I think sometimes just writing things down doesn't necessarily lead you to the same level of understanding as both writing and speaking, Um, and having somebody reflect back to you, the building upon your ideas. When somebody asks you a question based on what you said, that question actually might be the place where the... The deeper level of understanding goes. You know, you make the connection. Um, so it's ongoing. It can be weekly. It could be at critical benchmarks. Every, you know, when you when you finished a, a phase, that's up. To, that just depends on the project and your own style. But definitely at the end, you, there's a time of taking stock um, about what you did, what you learned, and what you do next. And, and maybe even you know, uh, measuring yourself up to the quality that you strove for, like this is my best work to date, or this works okay, but I know next time, like if I'm gonna go into this, I know I have to improve these five things, um, and, and actually documenting that. This day and age, I don't know, you document it through a, through a portfolio, through writ writing to doing a voiceover on the on the product and having a video scan like a Ken Burns style and we have some fun with a creative uh, aspect of reflection. Um, but if you're in a learning mode and you're not reflecting, you're really not
0: you're really not learning. Why are you not learning? Playing devil's advocate, couldn't you be embodying all the practice and stuff?
1: I mean. So let's just put it away, you're being less intentional about your learning, and um, you're bound to, I think, miss some things, especially in the more nuanced, you've mentioned the word nuance a few times, the more nuanced parts of what are going on. Like, are you missing learning, like, on the hard facts of, like, coding for an iPhone app? Probably not. Um, Are you going to miss the learning on the problem-solving process that you went through, on the challenges that you faced and how you went about solving that, if you were working in a team, whether whether that was an effective team or not an effective team, um, those things will be lost, I think, un- unless you take a pause and think about how was I as a team member, how I how was it working in this team, why didn't it work as well as I'd want to, what am I going to do differently the next time I go into the into this uh, working in a team, and that intentionality will actually make your, I think, you'll grab that learning and you'll reapply it in a new team and your team will be better. My, my friends at, at, at Sir Francis Drake High School, they run this program called the Rock program. And they do this cool thing. I, I hope they still do it. When you get done with a project, each of the team members evaluates each other. Um, and they give them feedback. And they, and they do a written uh, feedback and they also have a conversation and then the kids have a file and they put that evaluation into the file and then when they go to their new group they review their file and they say, well these are the things that I'm really, based on what I got in this feedback, this is what I'm really good at about my group and then they share their files so you you have like a high level of accountability to your team because you know like in the end your work's going to get passed on to your, your peers Um so but that's just another way of, reflection, of reflecting and applying it. Um, so I, 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 I think it was a good point of yours. Like you're not gonna lose all the learning, but I think the things that are most difficult to learn, if you're not reflecting, you're gonna, you're gonna miss them.
0: And I love the example you, you just gave because by students sharing their learning with other students, the other students could say oh wow <laughs> I-, I could learn that thing too or I could learn it that way you know um, and and I can totally relate to what you're saying because I know I when I was in college I started a, a food cart and part of it was through an independent study and it wasn't until the end of the study when I was asked like what did you learn from it that I actually started putting words to it and actually started really thinking about it and it's it's kind of once you've really thought about it and you can talk about it explicitly, then it kind of codifies it and into your memory because then, you know, when people say, what'd you learn about it? Like the question became so much easier because I had already thought about it and I think that's kind of a good indicator.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's That was my experience in both as a learner and as a teacher. Um, and I had a project that I did w- which we put kids out in internships in high school and we called them workplace learning experiences and we we're hoping that they were going to learn things like communication skills and critical thinking and um, problem solving and um, uh, apply technology in a real life situation and so we put the kids out into the internships their first year and they're, they're, they were they were awesome they were creating really cool projects and they were loving it, and we brought in an evaluator, and they interviewed the kids and said, so, this is, and they described your experience, they were like, oh, this is so great. Well, what are you learning? And what skills are you learning? And they were like, this is so great, I love my internship. And they couldn't articulate it. they didn't have words for it. <laughs> and so then we set about, and we created uh, a set of standards for those skills, we created a, a portfolio and ask, told the kids they're going to have to actually create uh, a reflection and then and show how their work is evidence of these skills. And they have to use the language. And the next year, when she came back and she asked the same, you know, kids again, what's going on in your internship? And they could say, Oh, well, I'm learning communication skills. And let me tell you how, because now they had words to it and they had a descriptor, but they'd also been um, challenged to do it. Like there's some discipline to it. That's where I think like learning within the context of a course or a school, it's a little easier because you can make it as a requirement or at least somebody's asking you. All right, Dan, we want you to reflect on what you learned. And then turn it into me so I can, and so there's a discipline to it. It's tougher, I think, when you're doing your own project and you're self directed learning and you're an entrepreneur and you're like, damn, I don't have time to reflect. I just got to get this thing done. Um, and so it's, but I think you still have that great opportunity for the learning if you were to do it. And I think a framework, so discipline for reflection, but also having a framework. In order to ground your reflection, so you're grounding it within a framework, like a set of standards, and saying what what am I learning as far as becoming an effective collaborator, and here's what a standard is for collab- being an effective collaborator, and I'm bouncing my work against that standard. Reflection absent the framework is still good, but it doesn't. It's not as um, uh, it's not as targeted, and then you're not actually getting as
0: much language. So let's take the example of entrepreneurship from the teacher's perspective. Entrepreneurship can be difficult to teach because it is inherently open-ended and everyone's making MVPs and pivoting. And so it's hard to kind of be like, no one can say at the end of the the year, let's have a venture (laughs) because you might run into all these roadblocks which are great learning and you may not end up with a venture but you might have learned so much about an industry so with a topic like entrepreneurship that's unwieldy I'm kind of reiterating some of the things that I I'm learning for you <laughs> making explicit my learning it seems like an effective approach would be to really name the universal skills that are involved such as asking for advice such as understanding the market um, as well as um, being resourceful with your time, because you can kind of get lost and and on track. Um, And then when you say, you know, a framework and standards, does that mean that, like, if one of the qualities that you're going to develop as an entrepreneur through this project is resilience, we have two lines. This is what resilience looks like, A+. This is what resilience looks like, A. This is what resilience looks like, B plus is is that what a standard is or what do you mean by standard or framework because I, I can imagine how, how do we communicate these skills in an effective way when it comes to entrepreneurship so that it's codified in people's learning and that they can actively reflect on
1: it. yeah that's great that's so resilience mm-hmm. it let's define it what is it let, let, we, resilience means that when you face a challenge you don't give up and you look for new solutions and you keep persisting until you solve it. So I'm making that up, I don't know. What is it? And then there's a there's sort of a continuum and we wouldn't use grades. We'd we'd say something like you've mastered it. You're you're clearly resilient because you have you've shown and this is where evidence comes in. I have evidence that shows I had I faced challenges. I overcame them by doing these three things, or I'm, I'm almost there because I, uh, I faced challenges but I, I gave up. I don't know. <laughs> the other one is I didn't even like, I didn't even try to, I just like threw in the towel. It's a, not a good example, but there's a there's a continuum towards it that you can say, here I am on this continuum to becoming more resilient. Um probably people who've gone in are already resilient. That's why it's not a good example, because people who are not entrepreneurs usually know that it's going to be a challenge and they're they kind of like that fact of not giving up. Um but you could think of another like you're gonna learn how to use your time well and define it and say, and when you're using your time really well, it looks like this. And when you're you're using your time well most of the time, it probably looks like this. And when you're not using your time well, it looks like this. And if I would and what evidence would you show me that I would like that I would confirm or validate for you that you use your time well? And um, it could be like, oh yeah, well let's see, I use um, where is it? I use to do. And I have all this of my to-dos, and you can actually go back and see how I, you know, because the data's there, and I'll show you, like, I set out all my tasks, and I make sure that I hit those, you know, at least three every day. Um, So now I actually, I had a standard. I work towards it, and I actually have some evidence um, that can articulate it. And what it it almost becomes self-reinforcing behavior, because you've said, this is what I care about. Here's the potential evidence that I could use to... um, uh See it, and um, now I'm actually gonna go do it because I, I want to I meet the standard.
0: I really love that example you gave for two reasons, two among many reasons. <laughs> um, I think having those standards makes reflection really easy because you know, I, I went through some entrepreneurship programs when I was starting the restaurant in college. And it was kind of like, here are the stages of entrepreneurship. It was super external, and that I was working towards them. Where if you go in with these standards, it does a couple of things. It kind of defines what the skill is of entrepreneurship beyond the I built an app, I built a business. So that there's sort of eternal things that no matter what your outcome is in the project, you feel like you have grown and those kind of set up a perpetual reflection <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know
1: well and then like hard skill like you go in and you want to interview for your job for an opportunity or then yeah. you can say hey I am great at managing my time and I can tell you how I did it in this specific context I am I'm excellent at managing resources mm-hmm. um, I know how to get them use them effectively and um, uh, and uh, and evaluate their effectiveness or not. And I can sh- and I'll tell you exactly an example of where I did that. So you're tying the standard to the work, and so you're not only learning the, you're not even getting the learning, but it's a it's a really powerful tool as you're trying to you know move to whatever next you want to do because you can actually articulate it. And then if you could even have a portfolio to show people it. Because the most important thing is like, I have this iPhone app. Look at this thing I created. And and you know, 200 people bought it. Uh, so somebody bought it, but I actually, not only do I know all the coding and all the stuff on how to do an app, I know how to manage my time, um, get a product to market, um, whatever the three other things are. And I think that it's, it's reflection tied to a standard. It, they, you need both. Or a framework, something that gives you an anchor.
0: And almost ironically, even though that learning is internal, by putting this language to it and these standards, it allows you to be more public with it, <laughs> like That's, you said in the interview.
1: Right. Um, and it gives a, see, uh, we work with student portfolios, and I've been thinking about this with other portfolios as well, like for teachers or school leaders. Very similar. Like, I want it, by giving the framework, and um, doing it and, and making it um, pu- it makes it public, and it, uh, it but it feels like productive reflection. It's not just for the um, it's not just an exercise, if you will, because you cre- even the reflection. Like creating a digital portfolio, becomes something that's shared, um, and I can I can show you what I'm when working on. And what I'm learning through it, and it can be used for other purposes. I think that multi, that's so often like most, so many things we do in traditional school are just used for traditional school, like do it, throw it away. But when you're setting up things in a project-based way with some good standards to work back from or frameworks, opportunities for reflection, somebody who cares about your work, just like my book of poetry from the fifth grade, you keep it because it actually you care. You know you cared about it. You were talking about ownership earlier. I mean, you could also say students care. If you care, you 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 own it.
0: And it's not a care about. I care about getting a good grade, or I, I care about performing well. It's even if my teacher in my classroom's gone, <laughs> and yeah. this whole exercise is gone, I still care.
1: Right. It's, uh, and you and the another one I was thinking about when you have engagement or mm-hmm. ownership, and, and I would assume like entrepreneurs get it, like people that are producing things, is, uh, it's when you have flow. Mm-hmm. When you're not, time is not there. Um, all of a sudden I've been working on this for hours and it just seemed like, yeah, you know, a couple minutes ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's ownership.
0: So, we're kind of coming to the end. There's there's a challenge that I've been facing and I'd be really curious to hear your perspective on. So we're having our students, students and many of our listeners are really serious lifelong learners. They wanna be constantly learning and growing. And so an exercise that we're doing with our students is we're having them make a one pager. This is at the university. First third is their bio. Then it's, this is what I wanna accomplish at make school. This is what I want to accomplish in my first job and this is what I want to accomplish the next 50 or so years over my career and it's kind of an exercise to just be like let's think about our ideal futures and then we're going to have students meeting on a weekly basis kind of testing out things that they can do to get closer to it so it's almost like a very macro self-directed learning plan and so we're going to hopefully have small groups where every group students are meeting with four other students and they're asking, they're answering three questions. What did I learn this past week? What do I want to learn or test for myself this coming week? And how am I going to test it? And so, you know, these things could be gaining knowledge, gaining skills, gaining social emotional intelligence, changing a habit. You know, we have a list, you know, that's the way that we're thinking about structuring it, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective on people who just want to learn in general, in their own life, and there's, there's no project of life. How can they kind of, how should they design it? Should it be like, this is going to be my one-month project, my second-month project, when people just want to want to learn things for the sake of learning and growing? How would how you think about approaching that?
1: Hmm, It's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think of it, I think, for me, learning tends to be uh, contextual. So I think your idea, like, well, then I'm going to do a project, like a project a week, a project, whatever, I'm going to do something by which I'm going to learn. But there's plenty of reason just, you know, to go and, gather some information and that could be that as well i i think it's um figuring out what you want to learn and make a plan that fits to your your learning mode i love the idea of them having small groups to go back to to um either some accountability for that then that's good it helps build that discipline um so that's why a lot of people join book clubs so that they make sure they keep reading, so because they know they don't want to show up to the book club without having done the reading. Um, so having to show up to something, um, so figuring out where is that going to be for you as a learner, where you're going to show up to have to do the reflection, to think about what I, what I'm doing or what are you going to produce to demonstrate that you've actually learned it. Um, and some of it, I think, a lot of it is getting bet like. Ron Berger talks a lot about this, but you're trying to get bet like better, like it's the revision thing too. So that's the other like, what do you want to be? What do you want to actually get good at? Um, there's sort of learning about something, and then there's learning, really learning the skill or the craftsmanship of whatever the area is. Um, it's I really um, and, and respect people who can figure out how to do that. Like, I consider myself a lifelong learner, but most of it I do, like, in the context of my life or my job or, or maybe I want to learn a new, you know, learn to paddle surf or something like that. Yeah. But it's, it's not the same as, like, really saying, I'm going to learn something. Um, uh, you, I've learned a lot, but it's usually because it's sort of just in time <laughs> learning. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know if that was helpful.
0: Yeah, no, no, it was, you know, I, I think the context is what do you want to achieve at make school? And we're kind of leaving that open ended, um, and hoping that, you know, I, I think there's something very powerful about just even giving space for them to take complete reins, not just one handle of the education, but complete reins. And it's almost facing, I guess one of the skills is facing ambiguity. (laughs) Like, yeah, like how do you want to grow? Okay, yeah, uh, th- thanks for the question. Um, what Any context No, like, <laughs> yeah. how do you want to grow?
1: <laughs> right, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? Just leaving that blank and having to be with it. Yeah, my, there's a, uh, do you know Elliot Washer and the Big Picture Learning? Do you know those guys? No, I have not met them. Uh, let's see, um, Elliot is great. You should interview Elliot. Um, he's, he's a character, so it'll be fun, way more fun than interviewing me. Um, but he, he wrote a book.
0: This has been very fun, by the way. But he's, he's, he'll kill you.
1: I love Elliot. Uh, he wrote a book called Leaving to Learn and their schools are all set up. They're all student choice. I mean, not completely. It's a high school, so there's things they have to cover, but they've also, uh, his, his partner, um, they both sort of retired, sorta. They're not running Big Picture Learning. His, his partner, partner in crime, was Dennis Litke. and he started a new college in um, back in in Rhode Island, New Hampshire, um, and it's, But their whole deal is like personalization, student interest, learning through internships. Uh, his book is called "Leaving to Learn." Like, his premise is, like, probably you can't, you really do have to get outside of school in order to learn. Um, so I think he'd be a really intriguing person for you guys to talk to uh, who would have a lot to say about that last question.
0: Do you have any other, anybody else in education you look you look towards um, as a thought leader? And any last thoughts? Those are the last two questions.
1: Uh, well, you got Elliot. Ron Berger, uh, Ben Daly, and Larry Rosenstock at High Tech High in San Diego um, uh, are some of the people that have inspired me, continue to. Um, and I think the... Um, I, my last thoughts would be and I think um, thinking about like I said earlier when you asked me about project based learning, it's both a, it's both instructional strategies, but it's a way of thinking about learning. And what I've enjoyed about this conversation is thinking about how you use the framework of project based learning to think about your own, like how would I design projects for my own learning? And I, and I actually think they still hold. So if, If people are interested in thinking about that, like to go to our website, bie.org, look at our uh, gold standard project-based learning uh, design elements. And as they're thinking about their elements, think about how you would uh, align that. Like they don't have to be all eight all the time or seven. But um, they might be a good framework for people to start uh, thinking about. The other resource that would be, I think, is... um, when you're thinking about a framework that would earn uh, standards to frame entrepreneurship or self-directed learning, the uh, deeper learning outcomes. Um, the Hewlett Foundation has been a leader in this. Many of our, Do they have a list? They do, um, and there's a deeperlearning.net, um, and there's a conference at High Tech High in March, um, the Deeper Learning Conference. And it's about naming those standards and assessing them and teaching towards them. And what you guys are doing, are, and when they lay that out, is it's, it's communication, uh, critical thinking and problem solving, um, collaboration, uh, learning to learn, and uh, they call it academic mindsets, but it's basically this idea of setting goals, making a plan, um, being resilient. Um, in that context, and those sort of five elements. I'm probably missing one, but those are like those are sort of the universals. And if you can master those, then you can apply them to any job or field that you're in. Um, and so that would be another good, I think a good place for people to look to uh, to think about how they frame their own learning
0: and maybe reflect on this podcast for people who uh, want to learn this. <laughs> exactly <stuff. laughs> i'd like to
1: see blog on the podcast
0: <laughs> link back to us please <laughs> cool well thank you so much bob i really appreciate the conversation yeah and, uh,
1: daniel my too me too thank yeah, you well, for uh for spending
0: some time with me awesome have a great day okay you too take care yeah